and biblically accurate angels. Ooh, yes. I was gonna say, like, might be too, it might be too terrifying. I might be afraid. You should you be should. afraid. Angels are all around you, Brian. Wildly breakdancing behind you. And on that note, welcome to Logosish. This is John. We are kicking off another great episode today with Garrett and Brian and Sarah. And soon, in a minute, our guest will be Laurel Meyer Dirks. I said that correctly. She's giving me the thumbs up. I didn't say it at Garrett and Laurel's wedding, but that's that's beside the point. And I have been allowed to totally live that down. Mm-hmm. They're shaking their heads. Okay. Anyways, great day. Wonderful group of people. We're going to have a lot of fun in a minute. We are recording our Earth Day episode right now, and I totally did my homework for that last night, guys. I watched the new Godzilla movie. So I basically am totally up on environmentalism and giant monster smashing. Like, clearly all we need to do is just smash all the cities with Rest in peace, Hong Kong. Rest in peace. (laughs) How's everybody doing today? Is that a spoiler? Mm, sorry, spoiler alert. I'm doing I'm doing okay. Uh, I'm still in the midst of recovery from my second COVID shot, but hey, fully vaccinated, two weeks away from like actual freedom. Woohoo! Living that vaxxed life. I'm living my half vax life. I'm starting <laughs> my new position at my new church now in North Carolina. So really fun. Uh, really excited. Forgot about all of the pollen. Um, that is just in the air in this part of the country so you know sitting outside you just leave with a nice yellow green sheen to whatever is outside so it's been fun and i was thinking of watching the mist last night uh in preparation for this you know when trees attack two great movie references already i feel like we need to create like a netflix playlist for this episode the mist would definitely not be on that list it's about trees Snowpiercer would totally be on this episode, Sarah. I hate that movie with a with a fire. <laughs> How are you doing, Sarah? Um, I'm okay. Uh, we had to take our cat to the vet yesterday, and she is fine. But we have to give her medicine for five days, like liquid medicine, into her kitty mouth, and it is very hard. John is bleeding. It took almost an hour, and uh, yeah, we're just really relieved and happy to be here with you guys and. Not trying to give Mary Magdalene uh, medicine. So on that note, let's go ahead and bring in our guest. If you are a longtime listener of the show, you have heard her on previous bonus episodes. Laurel, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. I uh, also am adapting to living in North Carolina. Part of me really believed that it would be colder when I got up here because, you know, we, we drove north and that's how that works but it was 88 degrees yesterday so feeling a little tricked but otherwise okay (laughs) just wait november's like gonna be here at some point i'm ready so normally we make people introduce themselves and i don't know if you gave a lot of background on the christmas episode so why don't you kind of explain to folks what you do and who you are sure so I'm uh, Laurel Meyerdirks. I'm married to Garrett Roca, but I have my own last name for publication purposes. 
I am a PhD candidate at the University of South Florida. I'm currently finishing up my fifth year, finishing up my dissertation next year. And most of what I do has to do with environmental ethics, feminist theory, and phenomenology, which is just a great word to say. I teach at a couple different universities right now and uh, having relocated to like the research capital of North Carolina, I'm excited to tap into some of the universities and things going on up here. So one more time, you would like jobs at which universities, just in case? <laughs> well, you know, we're, we're pretty close to a lot of them, so I'm, I'm not too picky. I'm a big uh, UNC fan, obviously Duke, now that Garrett's at Duke Memorial. It's literally down the street. It's literally so down the street. We could carpool if you want to spend that time with me. Once you're married, you don't actually want to spend time together. I mean, come on, guys. That's right. I mean, yeah. So, but she's great, you know, when I see her every <laughs> every other week. Yeah. It's been interesting getting the, the house all organized and um, waiting for Garrett to start this new job. We've been We've been having a lot of extra time to spend together, and it's actually been nice. You see? I'm fun I, to be around, guys. We like each other. We promise. So why don't we go ahead and launch into today's topic, and we can pick up the marriage conversation as we go from there. <laughs> I am just going to read my first question directly off of the sheet I wrote, and that is that we're talking about your research area today, which is ecofeminism. And so, Laurel, can you just start by explaining what ecofeminism is and why I just assume Tucker Carlson is upset about it? <laughs> yeah. So ecofeminism uh, started as kind of a like a grassroots political movement. But the way that uh, I interact with ecofeminism is as a theoretical approach to issues of environmentalist and feminist concerns. So the like basic claim of ecofeminism is that there are important connections between the domination of women and the domination of nature. So I think your assumption is correct. Yes, Tucker Carlson would definitely hate it and has mentioned ecofeminism. He has mentioned it on the air as something that is ridiculous. Point of pride for us ecofeminists, you know. I, I, I'm so curious, why does... Someone who has nothing to do with that get to say that's ridiculous. <laughs> so for real, I had no idea, like none. And I just looked at it and said, this sounds like something he would be freaked out about. Yeah, I think anything that ends in feminism, right? If we said, you know, phenomenological feminism or socialist feminism, or there's so many different feminisms, and I'm sure that all of them he would have some sort of issue with. Yeah, I think, yeah, anything that threatens him as a cis white man would just be an absolute threat needs to be destroyed or written off. It's, uh, it's kind of crazy that uh, he would even bring that up on the air and call attention to it. Well, I mean, if we really get into ecofeminist theory, there are a lot of reasons why he would want to dismiss ecofeminism, particularly because he benefits from a power hierarchy that is justified and maintained through the logic of domination, which keeps women and nature as subordinate groups. When you're on top of the value hierarchy, it makes a lot of sense that you would want to maintain it. It sounds like oppression's a value in that system, and that sounds horrible. 
<laughs> yeah, there's a lot of a lot of stuff to unpack. So can you lay out some of the like core premises for us? Like like what are the key features? Sure. So um as I said, the the sort of basic claim is that there are connections between domination of nature and the domination of women. And the sort of main way of mapping that out, if you're listening and you have a piece of paper, you could draw this out if you want to, is that there are a number of dualistic pairings that have existed in the history of Western philosophy, things like men and women operating on different sides of a spectrum. And if we start to lay them out, we would have men and women the mind and body, culture and nature, uh, rationality and emotion. And once we get all those concepts laid out, what we see is that everything that ends up in the left column, men, rationality, civilization, the mind, are all conceptually linked together. And things like women, nature, the body and emotions get conceptually linked together such that we refer to nature in the feminine. We think that women are more bodily and more in touch with their emotions. And by linking all those things together and saying that they're all devalued, we can get to the point where, for instance, as feminists are trying to um, work towards women's liberation, as long as women are associated with nature and nature is a devalued category, that is a point of, of bondage that's holding us back, right? As long as women are connected as being more bodily and things that are bodily are devalued, that's another point of connection that's holding us back. So part of the argument with ecofeminism is that this connection between women and nature, uh, we can have no liberation for women as long as we continue to oppress and devalue and destroy nature and refer to it with feminine pronouns as we do. So what does that look like? As far as the liberation goes? Yes. Or you can treat this as like a Rorschach test and whatever you assume says something about <laughs> it. I have no idea. Yeah. So the part of the goal, at least uh, in the angle that I work towards, part of the goal is taking those dualistic pairings and recognizing that nothing in existence is as cut and dry as that, right? There is no such thing as a, a stark separation between society and nature, for instance. Just as we've discovered that the mind does not operate separately from the body, right? We are embodied minds. There's no way to experience the world around us without being embodied. So at least uh, my foray into dismantling this, what's called an oppressive conceptual framework, is to recognize that those dualistic pairings that turn into this value hierarchy, the dualistic pairings themselves are a falsehood. Our lived experience does not map onto these strict separations in any sort of way. So kind of cutting off that oppressive conceptual framework at its roots allows us to say things like, Men are also interrelated with nature, right? Men are also connected to their emotions, connected to their body. Uh, women obviously have rationality, right? Uh, that those Both of those columns just come together and are uh, fully intertwined and inseparable. So that's, that's one way of kind of cutting off that value hierarchical thinking at its knees. 
that's one of the approaches that I take. So then liberation can obviously uh, happen more easily if we recognize that women aren't inherently uh, like responsible for nature. Uh, and the only reason why women have been treated as closer to nature throughout history is because they are both these devalued categories that have been maintained in this structure. Is that mostly a sort of Western way of thinking, or is it sort of, you know, blanketed? You can see that women are uh, devalued, you know, across uh, different cultures and contexts. So the, the devaluation of women is something that is seen across many different cultures and contexts. The ecofeminist approach, those value hierarchies that I was talking about, that is based on the history of Western philosophy. And so we'll see, for instance, like one of the books that I'm going to recommend towards the end is Karen Warren's perspective on ecofeminism. And she says it's a Western perspective. The way that those value hierarchies get traced throughout Western philosophy relies on a lot of familiar figures in like Greek philosophy, German philosophy, French philosophy. It's, it's mostly a Western perspective. But the issue of the devaluation of women is global. So even though this is a Western perspective on the issue, it is a global issue. Um, and we can see, for instance, empirical connections between the devaluation of women and the devaluation of nature everywhere. For instance, Karen Warren gives the example of women in countries where uh, the women and the children are tasked with going to collect water. As droughts increase, those women and children have to walk further to collect water, which takes up more time, which restricts the amount of time that they're able to devote to income-producing activities or educational pursuits. And so as the world continues to get hotter, there is a connection there that leads to women and children in those countries having fewer opportunities for income-producing or educational opportunities. So that the connection is global. This particular um, way of addressing it that I'm talking about is predominantly Western. So to oversimplify, there is a mass interconnection of oversimplifications in our philosophical models and understandings. Yeah, that's, that's a really good way of putting it, actually. And it's ubiquitous and, I mean, sort of like frustrating in common sense when you start to think about it, right? Um, particularly when we talk about like issues of the Anthropocene and climate change, people who, who act as if their actions have no bearing on nature or that the degradation of nature will have no bearing on their livelihood. People live like pretty freely within this oppressive conceptual framework that removes them from nature. And they seem pretty willing to just live their life not knowing that they're like sawing off the branch that they're sitting on. Yeah, I can remember when Sarah and I took like intro to Christian ethics at Candler and Dr. Marshall, uh, Ellen Ott Marshall had us read uh, an article on like the- Hey Brian. What? Sarah definitely was not in that class with you. Oh, maybe I took that with Karen. That's okay. Yeah, it was, it was not me. <laughs> My bad. No. Well, we read an article in the class that I only took because I don't <laughs> think any of the rest of you took it with me on the effects of climate change on like the necessity for human beings to move. And the estimate at that point was like somewhere in between 100 and 150 million people needing to move like in the next century. 
like because of we just don't care about the climate and aren't willing to do things. Alternatively, we could genetically engineer ourselves with gills. Now, hear me out. Hear me out. Waterworld was a legit, fantastic concept for a movie. Or we could take a, a also irresponsible attempt at science and, and uh, try to get everybody to Mars. To yeah. ruin another planet. Well, no, that's logistically impossible. I'm sorry, Brad. Okay. Yeah. Have you ever watched the expanse? Oh, water there aliens out there. Let's the get space back on thing. That. The space thing is actually like one of my pet peeves. Ooh. I don't know if you guys ever uh, read the book growing up, The Wump World by Bill Peet. It was a sort of like hippie environmentalist book from the 1970s that dealt with all these cute little creatures um, living on this planet. And a group of people called the Plutons come in on their ship and, you know, build their infrastructure and build their speedways and all the stuff and pollute the world and, and the Wumps have to live underground. And then the Plutons ruin the planet and they go and zoom off somewhere else and leave the Wumps to, to deal with the, the world that's covered in concrete. And there's just like such an ethos of, oh, well, we'll just go and colonize another planet that is like quintessential, like we're the pollutants. Like that's just, we're going to go live in the exact same way and learn nothing on another planet. Ironically, colonialism is just bad, regardless of whether it's in history or in the future. Yeah, so that, I have not read that book from the the 70s, but uh, it sounds interesting and sort of sounds or reminds me that uh, environmental repercussions are disproportionately affecting people who don't have the ability to move or the means to to escape it. So could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So what Brian just brought up is the issue of climate refugees. And that's something that ethical theorists right now are really trying to to work on, um, particularly because giving climate refugees that status as refugee dictates a certain political response. And it's a political response that a lot of countries aren't willing to make just yet because this is such a new category. But you are correct that a great deal of the harms that are being done are being done by wealthy countries who will not feel the repercussions. It's people in more vulnerable communities that are going to be feeling the repercussions. So the question of responsibility is huge for climate ethicists in terms of who is responsible for housing climate refugees, right? If you've uh, essentially produced actions that have led to someone's house burning down, how responsible are you uh, for offering shelter to that person? And of course, the argument is that, you know, uh, the U.S., for example, has contributed a great deal to, you know, the production of greenhouse gases. But the argument is that uh, we didn't know how bad it was going to get when we first started. And so how responsible can we be at this point? Uh, so there's there's a lot of questions, <laughs> a lot of pretty responsible. Yeah. I was just going to say, like, I, I'm so used to teaching, you can cut this, but I'm so used to teaching students where I can be like, let me put up this chart of, you know, all these different countries and how much they, you know, contributed to emissions. It'll study them. And that's hard to do on a podcast. Yeah. I was going to say, well, one thing that I think we already sort of knew this, right? Especially with some of the things you've given me to read at the beginning of the industrial revolution. Um, you had a lot of people talk out against this. I mean, the people that interesting interest me the most were 
the poets of the time. So William Wordsworth was talking about this. Uh, Jonathan Swift was talking about this. And there were major, uh, of course, there were scholars there who also uh, were talking about it. What were they saying? So some of the earlier warnings about climate change were occurring like around the like early 1800s, right? Like the concept of the greenhouse effect only came into public knowledge around like the 18, late 1820s, 1830s. But there were scholars previous to that who were beginning to note links between things like deforestation and drought. One of the ones that I have made Garrett read. I was translating Alexander von Humboldt's Restuck Venezuela, his travels through uh, Venezuela. And he noted, for instance, that deforestation by colonizers around a particular lagoon had occurred to such a great extent that the lagoon was now drying up at a quicker rate than it had ever happened before. And that was also, he was in Venezuela in 1799. So a lot of these discoveries were happening pretty early on uh, that noted the way that we treat the environment is leading us down a pretty terrible path. But action wasn't really taken on it for a while after that. We could argue that very little action has been taken as of right now. I, I was about to say, like, I'm not sure that <laughs> too much as a... We might be more consumeristic now than we were then in, in many ways. We saw something recently about the amount of plastics that have been produced in the past 20 years being like significantly greater than like the whole history of plastics before that. Yeah, the, the plastic consumption thing is pretty wild, especially the issues surrounding recycling and how little of it is actually recycled. It's pretty upsetting. Like, and you remember like the campaigns when we were kids, right? To get us to recycle. And then you learn when you're like 30 that, uh, no, that was just bullshit. Like, no, I believed Nickelodeon. <laughs> I will say those campaigns worked and I don't know why we don't have them now for children. But I will never like finish a six pack of uh, drinks without clipping all those little plastic rings so that they don't yes. choke the fish, you know, like that's you were indoctrinated as a child to make sure that that was done. Yeah, we were strangling turtles left and right. But terrible. we were not indoctrinated to the point where we wouldn't buy the drinks. So I'd like to take a real quick straw poll here. Captain Planet reboot? Captain Ooh. Planet reboot. Yeah. I'd be into it. I liked Captain Planet as a kid. Uh, I think it's needed. Uh, so you we know, gotta have a uh, eco-feminist Captain Planet. So, like, Captain Marvel. We make a Captain Planet where Captain Planet is the woman, is what you're saying, and then we piss off half the internet. <laughs> I mean, judging Captain by this Planet podcast, is a man, it's in the Bible. <laughs> no, I, I think I think if we really want to like take off Tucker Carlson, because that's our goal here at this point, right? Is mm -hmm. uh, Captain Planet needs to be of MB at this point, Tucker Carlson? We dare you to mention us on your show. <laughs> it's a lot of press. I don't know. I think a gender fluid Captain Planet would be great. Ooh. Breaking down those dualisms. I like it. Yeah, take that dualisms. <laughs> so let's let's retrace where we've been, class. We <laughs> talked about ecofeminism. We talked about some of the basic claims and structures. We talked about empirical connections, climate refugees. The, one of the ways that ecofeminism was introduced, at least in America, was through theological seminaries. 
uh, believe it or not. So the term was coined in France and was part of, as I said, a grassroots political movement that was happening over there. But the same year um, that the first work on ecofeminism, which was called uh, Feminism or Death, the first year that that was published, 1974, feminist theologian Mary Daly began teaching that essay in her theology classes. And Rosemary Radford Ruther, another feminist theologian, published Religion and Sexism in 1974, which contained same connections between the oppression of women and the uh, oppression of nature. So the the sort of port in to America for ecofeminism was through seminaries and feminist theologians. And a lot of publications are still being done in uh, that intersection of ecofeminism and theology. So one of your big things is ontology, right? So mm-hmm. I have never completely understood the definition of that word. Help me out. Yeah. So first of all, that's super fair. <laughs> I've been reading phenomenology and studying ontology since I was an undergrad. I don't really think I understood any of it as an undergrad, but I certainly thought that I did. But ontology is the study of being, right? So uh, what it is for us to be beings, what we think that that consists in. And probably like the the easiest way to navigate us into that conversation would be to think about the ontology that we have lived in up until this point, which is dualistic ontology, right? So we could think, for instance, about the history of Western philosophy, thinking that uh, minds and bodies are separate, right? I'm sure all of you are familiar to some degree with the Cartesian problem of how to figure out how the mind makes the body move, right? Um, that those things were separate. This is Descartes' kind of ghost in the machine thing, right? Yeah. So dualistic ontology presented us as, you know, our minds and our bodies are separate. Dualistic ontology also tells us, for instance, that uh, there are subjects and there are objects. And one of the main ways that we could think about maybe refuting that is that if you are, for instance, driving your car and you drive under like a low overpass or a tunnel and you duck, even though you're in your car, right? There's a certain degree to which in lived experience, we don't necessarily see ourselves as uh, split strictly into subjects and objects. We, in our lived experience, are engaged with the things around us in a very intermeshed way. If you're writing, for instance, you forget that the pen is in your hand. Um, You are like in a process with the pen and you only really notice that it's an object if it breaks, if it malfunctions, if it does something that you don't expect it to do. So when we're talking about ontology and these concepts of what it is to be a being, we have our sort of previous conceptions of like, I'm a subject separate from all the things that are out there in the world that are objects. Myself as a being, my mind, my body are separate, right? Where the mind is seen as the subject and the body is seen as the object that has to be moved around and manipulated. And the ontology uh, that I advocate for that phenomenological theory is moving towards is uh, a more relational ontology, which recognizes that rather than being separate minds and bodies, we are embodied persons. There's uh, no strict division there. Um, Similarly, 
there isn't really a strict division between subjects and objects, right? Uh, the way that we make use of things in our day-to-day -day lives dissolves that such that the separation of subject and object can exist, right? I'm not saying that it doesn't, but it's like second order to the way that we live our life uh, in day-to-day -day living. And another part of that relational bit of relational ontology is to say that what we are as beings aren't, again, just like a subject and the world is out there as objects for us to manipulate. But what we are as beings is we are constituted, created, made up of all of our relations. And those relations include our relations with our environment. So again, rather than you know, experiencing the world around me as resources for my potential use, uh, my environment is something that is a part of my being. You can think of it almost like a spider web, right? Like think of like a really complex, like Charlotte's Web-esque spider web, where all the bits are interrelated. And so movement in any particular area influences all of the other particular areas. So we're no longer abstract individual subjects, you know, walking around and manipulating the objects out in the world, but anything that we do instead uh, affects this web of relationships that constitutes our being. So essentially you're saying we're all a part of ecologies, you know, food chains, cycles of various kinds, uh, all those little things that you, you kind of learn about the, the systems of nature and reality. Circle in, of life. In grade school, but not necessarily, like, like you know, they, they're not always integrated. But Laurel's saying they are integrated. But no, yeah, but I'm, I'm saying, like, when you learn them in, like, kindergarten or first grade or whenever you first, like, hear about the water cycle, like, like it's, it's always, it's kind of abstracted, even though, like, when you talk about ecology and environment, you really need to take a system systemic sort of like bird's eye, you know, sky high view that says all of these pieces are working together, right? I think one of the things like the image that makes it a little bit more clear to me is that when you learn about these things, like especially like the food train, you don't see humans as a part of that chain, right? There's no peg where we are. And, you know, but a good example of that is like, the Lion King, right? Where Simba and his dad are looking over and he said that we are all a part of this, this thing. So like where they start their understanding is different. All right. Cause they know that they are a part of this larger system and they don't see themselves separate versus, oh. you know, there's a, again, the division between like, you know, like, all right, that's a animal food chain. That's what the food chain is. And we go get our food from the grocery store. Like, there's. So I just want to fact check real fast. To my knowledge, we have never referenced The Lion King, and we just did it twice in like two minutes. Thank you, Brian. You're on your way. You know, Garrett. Like, I, I think biologists do see people as part of the food chain and integrated into these sort of natural chains and systems of ecology i think it's kind of going back to the the beginning of the podcast i think there is a history of of trying to accept people from certain things for various reasons and you know religion and christianity in particular have had a role to play in this in resisting evolutionary theory and other sorts of scientific breakthroughs for one reason or another often 
with the explicit goal or partial goal of making sure people keep a sort of exceptional status that goes beyond nature and trying to separate out some of those things. So, you know, like, it, it's not like there's not, like, competing worldviews here, right? As if God doesn't look over all of creation and call it all very good. Like, it's not just us. Like, I, I, I mean, and that's something we talked about in Becky's episode, like, in season one. We talked about how when we're talking about our own theology, we have to recognize a broader interconnectedness within creation. So come to think of it, The Lion King is actually a really good example if we're talking about different ontological attitudes, because the way that we see the pride lands in the beginning, everyone is very aware of their interdependence with like different ecological systems, right? The food chain works a certain way. No one takes more than they should, etc. But when Scar takes over the Pride Lands, he sees all of these areas as things that belong to him, right? He is the subject and they are the objects. And so he exploits them to a certain point that then, you know, the environment is degraded and everyone begins to starve and suffer. So it's, it's a good example of how our ontological attitudes can lead us towards the degradation of nature when what we really need to do is respect the fact that we are an interdependent part of everything that's around us and shift towards that relational ontology. So is, is the problem that when we're talking about food chains and things like that, those are separate beings? No, that's not the problem. I think that the food chain is a good example of something that, as Garrett pointed out, we've seen as like, that's something that animals do, right? But humans are the top of the food chain. There's an example, for instance, uh, an eco-feminist, Val Plumwood, who lives in Australia, was involved in a tussle with a crocodile. She lived, but it radically changed her view of humans being in some sort of higher privileged state because we're not at the top of the food chain. If we're equipped with all of our technologies, sure, we certainly are the only animal that has the power to render um, multiple species extinct in the way that we have. But it's certainly not the case that we are like able to, to fight off crocodiles left and right. Yeah, we just spend most of our energy trying to avoid them. Yeah. Physically, we're pretty soft. So I think, I mean, one of the interesting things that this brings up is that if we're collapsing that separation between culture and nature... One of the things that we might notice is that if we're tracing uh, historically the emergence of different cultures, a lot of what we do and who we are, as I said, is constituted by these relationships. And that includes our cultures, right? So the sort of land that we settle on dictates the sort of success that we will have there whether that is the emergence of different sorts of agriculture, different sorts of fishing communities, the sort of buildings that we build is determined by the sort of you know soil and resources that we can locate. So there's a lot of ways that you know we see ourselves as going out and shaping our environment, but there are just as many ways that our environment has shaped uh, the way that we've constructed our culture. And stunned silence. We all contemplate. Well, I mean, I was thinking about examples of that, right? So at the garden, we have a section of our church building that has a flat roof. 
And every time there's a leak, I'm just like, we don't live in the damn desert. We don't need a flat roof because you have a flat roof where it doesn't rain, but it rains here all the time as an example of not really appropriately adapting to your environment. You can always yeah. put a like a patio garden up there, Brian. Green roof. Uh, so we had a green roof at my college, which is literally a mile from the garden. And it caused some other problems because they did it poorly. But maybe in the future. We also have a flat roof at the church that causes us lots of problems. It's it's also made of slate and historic, so it's like impossible to repair. One part of our roof, the 1950s part of our building that was an addition is flat roofed, not slate roofed. Anyway, guys, you've been listening to Roof Talk on... <laughs> <laughs> Logos-ish. Well, but, but it's a part of like, how do you, how do you build culturally, like... And the dwellings in which we live and work, like, are a part of that culture. And have we adapted? And it's just one that's, you know, kind of a, a major one. Like, another example might be that, like, most civilizations start around bodies of water, whether that's rivers or, and, and that's pretty universal. It's why there's more people who live on both coasts than there is who live in the entire middle of the United States. And where's and where is the people in the middle? Most of them live along the, the Mississippi River. Most of them. Yeah, and I don't think that the roof example is necessarily bad either because it might point us to ways in which we've neglected to live and acknowledge the fact that we are in in relation with nature uh, in a very intimate way right when we produce architecture that ignores the way that the environment around us works it's not ideal Um, whereas we're seeing more so now pushes towards producing buildings that acknowledge the way that the environment works so we can adapt uh, as idealistically as possible to you know, thrive in that particular context, whether that's the roof shape or doing a green roof to make use of sunlight, a lot of different ways that we're, we're learning to live with the environment and not just, you know, stick ourselves down in the middle of it and and call it our domain. And then there's like extreme examples, like in Japan, where like skyscrapers are built with in such a way that they resist earthquakes, things like that, because they're conscious of that. They did come up with the concept for Godzilla. Is this a movie podcast? Am I being? I think pumped? it might be falling into that now. We're gonna rebrand and re-release next month. Yeah. So, what would you suggest, well-meaning folks who listen to this podcast, to do with mm-hmm. ecofeminism to make, you know, some changes in their lives? How could we use that wisdom, or you know, recognize these dualities out there and address some of these things? Well, I think the first step is definitely recognizing that those dualistic splits aren't helping us in any sort of way, right? Uh, We have to recognize that we are interrelated with nature and the choices that we're making affect not only the areas around us, but as we mentioned earlier, the choices that we make in affluent nations are often causing harms to the more vulnerable populations around the world. Um, In terms of ecofeminism in particular, I think that The takeaway is that those systems of oppression, the way that we degrade nature um, and the way that we treat women, aren't entirely separate. Um, And anyone that's interested in 
you know, stopping the degradation of nature or anyone that's interested in the liberation of women should note that those two projects are deeply interrelated. We can't really achieve one without the other. So I think that's uh, one of the big takeaways is to recognize that any project of liberation that we take up has deep relations to other areas of oppression in the world. So Laura, one of the things I found really interesting about the paper you sent us was this concept of border conditions and the idea of ecofeminism as a philosophy being a sort of philosophy in process as opposed to something like say virtue ethics where you're you've got a sort of core central idea and it's it's sort of clearly laid out and it's set and you're sort of rooting everything in that where he's like ecofeminism has a different sort of approach to things. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. So when we take ecofeminism and we apply it to ethical theory, as you mentioned, these border conditions are a way of making sure that our ethical theory is adaptable to different contexts in ways that theories like um, virtue ethics or like Kant's deontology or John Stuart Mill's utilitarianism aren't. Those aren't uh, contextual ethics. Whereas ecofeminism really emphasizes listening to the voices of the people in different communities and letting them determine their own approach to ethical theory. Now, what border conditions do is place sort of guardrails around that sort of open call for ethical approaches, right? So we have to be careful. If we were to say any community can produce their own ethical theory and they're all correct, we end up falling into uh, like relativism, uh, which can have some very bad consequences. What border conditions do is say it's fine for communities to create different ethical approaches. They should have different ethical approaches. They're all unique historical social context, but no ethical theory can fall into this category of accepted ecofeminist approaches unless it meets these particular conditions. And some of those are no component is going to advocate for uh, sexism, racism, classism, or any of what we call the, the isms of domination. The components that are included aren't going to be permanent. Uh, as you said, ecofeminist ethical theory is a theory in process. It will change, it should change as the world does. Different components should be pluralistic, right? None of them should um, appeal to some sort of universal ethical attitude. Uh, no portion can claimed to be objective in its point of view. And the theories that are included under this umbrella should bring things like values of care and love, friendship and trust back into moral theory, where they've largely been excluded in approaches like deontology and utilitarianism. Those sort of values are generally ignored. So border conditions work to allow us ethical flexibility um, in different contexts, according to our sort of cultural and social practices. But we don't fall completely into relativism because we have these guardrails that produce a sort of conditions for acceptable ethical theories. Here's an, might be an easier question. If people want to learn more about eco-feminist ethics or just philosophy, where should they start? Well, there are a couple of 
books that I would suggest. Um, one of them is Karen Warren's Ecofeminism, a Western Perspective on What It Is and Why It Matters. Karen Warren's introduction to ecofeminism is, I think, one of the most accessible. She also has an article called The Power and Promise of Ecological Feminism uh, that's also very accessible. And then other authors like Carolyn Merchant, Val Plumwood, Chris Kumo all have singular monographs dedicated to ecofeminist theory. But I would start with Karen Warren. I think that her writing is very accessible. Well, Laurel, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a, a real fun conversation, even though it has kind of drifted into conversations about movies and other things. And, you know, we like to end on a positive note. So I'd like to invite you all now to ignore that looming tower of existential dread that we have drummed up with our conversations about, you know, climate change and, you know, the future and ecofeminism and just talk about what's bringing you joy right now. It's it's a lovely day outside. That's great. That's giving me joy right now. Our kitty who we spent chasing around for an hour to give medicine to and made John bleed is now happily stoned on her medicine and is just purring and jumping on us and having the time of her life. So that that warms my heart. Makes the the scratches worth it. I'm going to double down on that. Uh, I don't know if it makes the scratches worth it, but oh. <laughs> it certainly, certainly, certainly is good to see. We really had to dedicate some time and some strategy to catching her and getting her that medication. And I worry sometimes that our pets are smarter than we are. Yep. They, they know you very well. Uh, I would say that I'm just really excited for Laurel to be on the podcast because I've been name dropping her all of the time and now people can hear her more. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to be here and happy to get a, an excuse to talk about my research and talk about it with all of you lovely people. So Laurel, if people want to look you up and find out more about your work, where should they go? Well, I have a website, laurelmeyerdirks.com. Um, hopefully we can put it in some sort of a description box so that I don't have to spell my last name. Should I spell it? We can definitely put it in the show notes, but you know, if you do want to spell it, go ahead. I mean, I, I feel like John you should spell it out. <laughs> yeah. So you can go to, uh, laurelmeyerdirks.com. Laurel is L-A-U-R-E-L -E and Meyerdirks is M-E-I-E-R-D-I-E-R-C-K-S. Dot com And uh, that's where I keep a description of everything that I'm working on, a schedule of presentations that I'm giving, links to um, my publications and audio recordings like this, uh, discussing my research, as well as my CV and my teaching portfolio, uh, if you're interested in some of the things that uh, I teach and work on. Hint, hint, major North Carolina University. <laughs> Indeed. Or multiple, or multiple. The best audio interview that they can ever reference, so. <laughs> yeah, this will definitely be up there. Well, Laurel, thank you so much for joining us today and explaining some challenging concepts really well. You know, I really appreciate it. Personally, I'm terrible sometimes with certain philosophical ideas and they can be hard to get your head around. And so I really appreciate you coming on to, to teach us a little more about that today. Sure. I hope they were all decipherable. It's difficult to jump right into 
teaching them without uh, the whole background of Western ethical theory to work off of and compare to. But hopefully it was all discernible. Well, someday we'll figure out how to add charts to this thing. I have no idea how, but we'll do it. We'll, we will add a visual medium to an audio medium. <laughs> Listen, that's a Patreon tier, you know? Pay $5 a month and you get the charts. We could do it like Audible and just be like, there's a downloadable PDF with this download. There you go. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening and joining us for another great episode of Logos-ish. You can check us out wherever podcasts are downloaded, streamed, etc., Please like, subscribe wherever you got this podcast. And if you'd like to help support us, you can check us out and check out our page on bookshop.org where you can help both local bookshops as well as our podcast. And you can find more from us at logosish.com. Have a great week. Hey guys, this is John. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Logos-ish. This week's music was by Audionautics.com. If you have any questions or thoughts, or if you'd like to have your music featured on the podcast, be a guest on the podcast, or suggest a topic for us to cover, send us an email to logosishpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at logosishpod, and we just ask that you please like, subscribe, and review wherever you downloaded this podcast so we can continue to get the word out about all the cool stuff that we're doing. Have a great week.